The reading this evening is from Philippians chapter 1 and can be found on page 1178 of the Bibles in front of you. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I will always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, do keep that reading open, and you might also find very helpful to have the back of the service sheet, which gives you a bit of a timeline, and uh, you can see when it was that on Paul's second journey, in about somewhere between 48 and 51 AD, he planted the first church in Europe, in Europe and then in 62 he receives a gift and writes this letter that we're looking at. Now, Paul's letter to the Christian community at Philippi was different in some ways from most of his other letters. It wasn't written to a church that was in either moral or doctrinal crisis like Corinth or Galatia was. And it wasn't written to a Christian community that he didn't know firsthand very well, like, for example, his letter to the church at Rome earlier. He wrote it to a group of Christians of whom he was very fond of. In fact, a bishop of the early church in the first century, in about the 90s AD, just about 30 years later, called Polycarp, he, uh, he's, uh, he, he records that Paul loved to, quote, boast about the church at Philippi, because the church community there was for him a model church, one that others, like ourselves years later, can and should aspire to. And it's a letter that's full of encouragement as they navigate the Christian journey, aware of those who from outside of the church, and actually sadly those who from within the church, might try and corrupt the apostolic teaching or dilute the biblical behaviour. And he urges them to press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, in uh, chapter 3, verse 14. And he provides examples on which 
they, the Philippians, were to model their Christian lives. He gives the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, who they knew, uh, 2, 19 to 30. And indeed, he is bold enough to offer himself as an example to follow, 1, 12 to 18, 3, 17 and 4, 8 all of whom fashioned their lives on the example of Jesus. And there is a classic passage in uh, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, which is often thought may have been an early Christian song or hymn in which the, uh, the humility of Christ in humbling himself to give up all that he had so that he could gain for us what he, he had and we didn't. So let's, before we dive in, get a little bit of the background, and that's where that timeline and the map is helpful. So first of all, where is Philippi? If you tried to find it today, you'd just find it in ruins. But it was the first church in mainland Europe. It's, uh, it's, uh, it was in those days a strategic city on the route between Rome and Constantinople, Istanbul today. It was a well-travelled route by a combination of sea and land for travel between the two great cities of the Roman Empire, cities which a couple of centuries later would become the foci of the divided Roman Empire between the West and the East. And it was in an area of uh, fertile soil which in Greece is a bit short to come by, and it had prospered in earlier years by the discovery of gold and silver, although by the first century the mines were exhausted, but nonetheless they had historic wealth and infrastructure and their economy flourished. It was named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip II of Macedon, who was, uh, and it was fortified in 356 BC to protect the gold mines. When the Romans kind of became top dog in around 168 BC, um, they took over the place. And in 42 BC, after the assassins of Julius Caesar um, were uh, defeated by Julius's adopted son Octavian, who later became Augustus Caesar, and Mark Antony, they developed a colony of retired Roman legionnaires to live in that part of Greece, veterans from the empire's victorious armies. Now from this we learn, I think, at least two things. It's important to use the existing natural channels of communication for the gospel to travel along, to um, to the cities on the main highway and from there taken by others to areas off of the main arterial roads. And it also shows how we are to use naturally occurring language such as a colony of aliens, as they would have been called, strangers. They were Roman legionnaires who'd retired and they'd been dropped in a Greek area. And the early church used that to illustrate the gospel. We Christians, Paul later says, are aliens or foreigners or strangers in a foreign land. 
we belong to another place. Until we get there, we are to live like a colony of expats in a foreign land. And we are to bear the characteristics of our true home rather than the one immediately around us. Now, the Christian community was um, the first one that Paul established in Europe around about this period, sort of somewhere between 48 and 51 AD. And we learn of um, his initial visit in Acts chapter 16. And we can see, perhaps unsurprisingly, that it was a very diverse church. The first converts recorded were, well, the very first one was Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman engaged in the textile trade. And then we read of her that, 1614 in Acts, that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the gospel and she opened her home to Paul and the gospel. God does have to open our eyes. Most of us who are Christian believers can probably think back and we may have actually heard loads of Christian stuff from a variety of sources until one day the penny dropped, it clicked. It's the way in which God opens our eyes so we see it and it all comes together and we have that experience really of realising that we are confronting reality, we are confronting truth, we are confronting God himself. So he opened her eyes and she opened her home to Paul and Silas. And next convert was a native slave girl and the third convert was a Roman jailer. Lightfoot, who wrote a commentary somewhere about over a hundred years ago, called it the ancient world in miniature. Three different people, very different people. Now our own church here is a community that consists, amongst other things, of around 25 different nationalities. And the age range is naught to early 90s. The educational background ranges from zilch qualifications to a few people who have got PhDs, some of whom are very modest and don't kind of let you know that. Now, some members or families may be worth, you know, seven-figure sums, but others live from payday to payday or benefit day to the next one. Some have been lifelong Christians, while others have had a very messy pathway to faith. The Christian church is inclusive and it embraces the diversity of humanity. But as the now Bishop of Bath and Wells once said, Pete Hancock, when he was Bishop of Basingstoke, we are inclusive upon repentance. Each of these converts, Lydia, the wealthy businesswoman, the slave girl, and the Roman jailer, all entered the Christian community. They entered the church. They entered into Christ by repentance of sin, followed by amendment of life. To one of the very messy churches of the first century, Paul wrote about what some of you were. In other words, 
they had changed. They had been changed by being in Christ. That's what coming under the lordship of Christ means. Thinking as he thinks, living as he lived, both of which we learn from scripture and from the examples of good Christians. Neither of which, thinking like Christ or living like Christ, are negotiable. You can't claim to follow Christ if you disagree with him, which is to state the obvious, but a lot of people try. Now, Philippi is the first place we read of where whole families were baptised. They came to faith together. Lydia and the jailers. And that reminds us that God has placed us in families. At the beginning, and from that, we learn quite a lot of things incidentally about the Christian faith. It's true in the Bible, but we discover it to be true in our experience. At the beginning of life and at the end of life, it is our dependency on others that educates us to the reality that we are dependent on God. If we are blessed to be parents, we learn something of God's desire and yet his seeming powerlessness to get us to respond to his love and graciousness towards us. And I say seeming powerlessness. He doesn't force himself on us but he is still all-powerful. Christian families are the bedrock of the church family. Both in marriage and ministry, male and female are complementary rather than identical, though still equal in status before God the Father of us all. The family rightly functioning has as one of its purposes, as the marriage service says, for children to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord. It's not surprising that those most hostile to God have in history tried to destroy the family. We think of uh, Lenin and the Marxists in the sort of 1918, 1919, in the early days of the revolution they tried but they failed and we see how humanistic secularists today try. Now why do they do that? Well, because fragmented, malfunctioning families make it much easier for them to bring about cultural, economic and political change. So even sometimes issues such as, which sound dreadfully boring, like fiscal policies, which is basically government taxation policies, there is a Christian viewpoint because families with kids raised by their biological parents have demonstrably, on average, the best outcomes. Whatever achieves that should be supported by the taxation system because it benefits the country. So that's where and that's who. We are um, now to turn to why. Why was it written? And we need to distinguish between two things, what prompted the letter to be written from Paul and to what purpose he used the opportunity to write. Well, what prompted it was that he received a gift brought to him 
by Epaphroditus, who was a member of the Philippian church. And so, of course, um, he writes back. But it is much more than simply a thank you note. Paul wanted to tell them how Epaphroditus had recovered from a serious illness, 225 to 30. And he hoped, he tells them in Philippi, that he would be able to send Timothy along to see them soon, 219. Now both these guys, um, the Philippians were told to emulate because they typified a Christ-centred, gospel-focused life that Paul wanted the Philippians to have. Paul also wanted to assure them that although he was under house arrest, with the real possibility of execution looming, that he was still in good heart through his faith in Christ, 1, 12 to 26. If he lives, he thinks, the gospel spreads as it was amongst his guards. I mean, they would take it in turns to be chained to him. They were literally a captive audience, and some of them were converted. And if he dies, he goes to be with Christ, which for him is so much better. Sixteen times in this letter, and it's not that long a letter, he uses the word joy, yet he's tagged by a chain and he's limited to the house he's in. He has been unjustly accused and he is awaiting trial. And yet he is full of joy. Now how's that? It's not what you'd expect. Well we read on and and you'll need to come back the following weeks to find out. But I can tell you now it's because he had a very secure perspective. He's convinced that Jesus is God, the Lord of the universe, and that his own life is secure in Christ. Things may go wrong for the time being, as it did with Jesus, but ultimately, Christ and those in Christ will triumph. So he wants them to make progress in the faith, 125, to press on towards the goal, 3.14. And he explains how spiritual progress comes. It comes by adopting a Christian worldview, to having the same view of life as Christ has, and by living the same moral life as Christ lived, and by doing so in the love and the service of others. It's been personified by Christ and exemplified by him, as it was by Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. All had much, but they gave it up for the benefit of others, of course, to varying degrees. Now, God will vindicate them on the day of Christ, he writes, the last day, the day of judgment, and so they can rejoice, and he punctuates that in every chapter. God will not leave them alone as they travel through life. Spiritual progress, though, does involve effort, he says. Work out their salvation with fear and trembling, 2.12. But knowing that it's in God who works in them both to will and to work for his good pleasure, 2.13. So with that bit of background, let us briefly look at these first 11 verses. There is a pretty clear structure. 
He opens in the first two, wor- two verses with uh, customary greetings, and then he turns to rejoicing in the partnership he has with them in the gospel, verses 3 to 6, before moving on in 7 to 8 to the basis of his confidence, and finally, 9 to 11, his prayer that the love of Christ will equip them uh, as believers to be ready for the last day. So the preamble, verses 1 and 2. Surprisingly, he doesn't refer to himself as an apostle or to Timothy as a bishop, but rather as servants, literally slave of Christ Jesus. And he, as a slave, is writing to the saints. That isn't, as we use the term, a kind of special Christian. All Christians are saints. It just means those who are holy ones, those who are separated, distinctive. But it is a bit of reversal of titles. Paul was an apostle, one of the twelve, whom the life and teaching of Jesus has been conveyed for all time to the world. We talk of the apostolic faith, not a faith that those twelve apostles dreamt up, but which they passed on. They were eyewitnesses of Christ. He enabled them to remember what they'd seen and heard, and he, they were inspired in order to write it down, and it forms for us the New Testament. It, they and it, the New Testament, are the foundation figures of the faith, and without what they have written, we would not have access to Christ. We might have mystical experiences, but we wouldn't have any way of defining who and what they were about unless we had the objective record. Timothy was a bishop or presbyter or overseer or elder. They all mean this. They all refer to the same office. And he oversaw a number of churches in Ephesus and um, he confirmed the appointment of leaders in each of the local churches. Both men, again in varying degrees, were pillars of first century Christianity. But relative to Jesus Christ, they knew their place. They did not want to acquire any glory that should rightly go to him. They were humble. Now, in a typical Church of England, I grant you this isn't a typical Church of England building, but we do try and do one or two things which are the same, which you would see in any Church of England building. It's one of the good things about the Church of England, in that the services are led from the side not from the front. Usually in a Church of England church, there will be um, a lectern where the Bible is read from and often where it is explained from. And there will be a Lord's table like today. But for both of those bits of furniture, for most of the service, there is no one there. But there is because we, as we gather together, have the presence of Christ, who is, of course, invisible. It's only when the ministers go and either um, explain the Bible under the authority of Christ, or if they go to preside at communion, to distribute the symbols of Christ's death, so that if we receive them by faith, 
we get the benefits of what they symbolise, namely forgiveness of sins, that the ministers occupy centre stage. It's all a simple way of reminding us that human beings are not the centre of attention when we gather together. Christ is the centre of attention, even though we can't see him. Well, then he has this characteristic um, ent- um, beginning to a letter, grace, that's charis, that's a Greek word, and peace, shalom, which is a Hebrew word. Both are traditional forms of greeting. Both, in bringing them together, Paul is effectively summing up the essence of the Christian faith. Grace, which describes all that God has done for us in Christ, We may have learnt as a little child God's riches at Christ's expense is what grace means. And peace, which is summarising all the benefits which we receive from a relationship with Christ. A sense of total harmony. A sense that everything, our understanding, our way of life, our relationships, Time, past, present and future, all fits together. Then in 3 to 6, we see Paul's joyful confidence in God because of their gospel partnership with him. Partnership is often translated fellowship. And the New Testament talks about our fellowship with God, in the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, and our fellowship with each other, both vertical and horizontal. And what Paul is doing is remembering, verse 3, their partnership with him over the previous decade, from the first day, he says, verse 5, until now. How they responded to the gospel and have supported him and he them ever since. But he acknowledges that the source which has made that possible, is God, verse 6. Sure that he who began a good work with you will bring it to completion. What God has started, he will finish. In Romans, Paul in chapter 8 writes about an unbreakable chain. God foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he sanctified, he glorified. And when the gospel first registers with us, it involves our minds, knowledge of the gospel. It involves our heart, an overwhelming sense that it is true and we are facing the one true God. And our will, a battle for supremacy. Is he going to be first or are we going to try and uh, still stay in primary position? And there's a choice before us. But could we have done anything other? So if what God starts, he finishes, how do we explain what's plain to see that some who once professed the faith don't seem to be living and believing at the present time? Well, there's one of two possibilities. Either they didn't genuinely, by repentance and faith, respond to the gospel, and so our, um, sorry, so either they did genuinely, through repentance and faith, respond to the gospel, 
and so are temporarily on a spiritual walkabout, or they never really genuinely responded to the gospel. Now, they may have seen something in others that they wanted. They may have known a certain emptiness in their own life, which they wanted filled. And they may have been aware that they've done wrong and they wanted kind of um, liberation from guilt. But for whatever reason, maybe lack of understanding that only by Jesus dying for us could our sins be forgiven. Or maybe a lack of surrender, taking the benefits without the surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Wanting a Christianity on my terms rather than Christ's terms, which of course is not real Christianity. Whatever the reason, the connection with Christ has not been made and so they are adrift. Now we of course are not mind readers, we don't know who's who. So how, what do we do? Well, we do what the Apostle did. We treat those who profess to be Christians as Christians until such a time as they reveal that they lack understanding or they do not display obedience. And then we gently and prayerfully point out the discrepancy and hope and pray that they might truly turn to Christ. And we move to seven to nine, a sound um, which is sandwiched between Paul's thanksgiving for them in verses three to six and his prayers for them in nine to 11. Now in this couple of verses, Paul explains the meaning of partnership or fellowship. The words koinonia, which I've often thought would be a good name for a laundrette, but that's complete aside. But um, um, the Philippians have shown their partnership with Paul because they, verse 7, have shared in the gift of grace with Paul in unjust suffering, in defending the gospel. That word is with a word from which we get apologetics, which means disarming prejudices and overcoming objections, clearing the deck so people can have confidence in examining the Christian faith, and then in confirming, which is declaring the faith. Both of these terms, um, the defending and the confirming, are legal terms, because doubtless at this time, Paul in this house where he's under arrest would have had in his mind his day in court and he is preparing his defence for that. Ever since the day he got banged up in Philippi a decade before and when he's now under house arrest he says that they have partnered with him. And in the letter, we can see what that actually means. They supported him financially, chapter 4, 10 to 20, praying for him, 1 to 19, sticking close to him while in prison. You know, they did not ditch him because he was in a bit of bother with the authorities. They followed his example. They remained true to his teaching. And they suffered in defending and declaring the gospel in the face of hostility. 1, 27, 28, and 2, 14 to 16. And Paul loves them for it. That is Christian solidarity at work. A great deal can be achieved for the gospel by having that sense of being in it together, that you're not alone. 
You're not a solo worker. So if you're soon off to uni or you're returning to uni, then do get stuck in with other Christians. You will achieve so much more together and, will you, and you will have a great experience of Christian camaraderie, much of which will last a lifetime. And finally, 9 to 11, his prayers for them, that the love of Christ might get them ready for the day of Christ. Paul is overjoyed with what started uh, 10 years before with a slave girl and two families. But he prays that it might continue more and more. He prays that love might abound more and more, verse 9, literally overflow for God and for each other. Now, I've seen that in our own church, in certain house groups and certain friendship groups, as members are in solidarity with one another, especially as they bear their family burdens. And in summer camp teams, as all the effort that goes into that week at camp proves to be so worthwhile. Next, he prays that uh, their love may abound more and more in knowledge. Love isn't simply an emotional experience. It's, uh, he's talking here, the word he uses is sacrificial love, rather than simply brotherly love. It's about putting oneself out for the benefit of others. Now, such love is rooted in knowledge, knowledge of God's sacrifice on our behalf in Christ, as well as knowledge of each other. And to abound more in discernment, in all judgment, being wise, deciding how to live, which for the Christian should be, he says, pure and blameless. The idea of purity is to rid ourselves of pollutants, such as mixed motives, and to be as pure as possible. That is the internal outcome. And to be blameless, free of external accusations, such as giving offence. That is the external outcome. And that's the state we should be in, either at our own death, or at Christ's return. And the credit for such achievement, if we get anywhere near it though, does not lie in ourselves, but we see that the fruit of righteousness derives from Jesus Christ, who has made us right with him. It is him living in us, being united in Christ, that cultivates the fruit. And as such, the glory has to go to him rather than us. So, uh, we've been, um, in these opening lines of his letter, we have an insight into Paul's heart. He has complete confidence in the power of God to achieve his purposes. He loves Christian partnership in working through those purposes. He loves to experience Christian solidarity. He longs to see Christians growing in love, understanding and amendment of life. And he looks forward to the day of Christ, which is the vantage point from which to view life. And it is to Christ that all glory and praise go. Amen.